SMS two-factor is okay, but I, I always recommend that we try and move towards something like Duo, Google Authenticator, something a little bit more tokenized. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some interesting stories to share this week. And later in the show, we welcome back Rachel Toback. She's from Social Proof Security. Great to have her back. We're going to check in on the latest social engineering trends that she's tracking. But first, a word from our sponsors at Know Before. So, what's a con game? It's fraud that works by getting the victim to misplace their confidence in the con artist. In the world of security, we call confidence tricks social engineering. And as our sponsors at Know Before can tell you, hacking the human is how organizations get compromised. What are some of the ways organizations are victimized by social engineering? We'll find out later in the show. And we are back. Joe, why don't you kick things off for us this week? Dave, I, I got a story from my personal life. Okay. My wife called me last week yeah. at work, and okay. she said, has your Facebook account been hacked? Do you know the fear that goes through a security professional's <laughs> head when someone they know and love calls them up and asks them that question? As a matter of fact, I do. Yes, uh, I'm, I'm familiar with that. So what went through your head? I was me like, oh, Dear God, what has happened? Yeah. A friend sent her some Facebook instant messages that said she had seen a lot of strange activity coming from my account. Okay. And my account had been posting strange links on her page. Okay. And that the posts were just links. Okay. And right away I'm thinking, man, this does sound like somebody's impersonating my account. So immediately I go to my timeline and I check my activity. My timeline looks normal. I don't see anything out of place. So I'm like, okay. So nobody has access to my account. Now, let me let me just pause you here for a second. Do you have multi-factor on your Facebook account? I do. Okay. All Mm -hmm. right. So nothing unusual there. You didn't get any notifications or anything. No, I didn't get any notifications or anything. Multi-factor won't help you if somebody has cloned your account. Mm. And that's the first thing I'm thinking is somebody has cloned my account. After looking at my timeline and not seeing anything out of the ordinary and fearing that my account had been cloned, I said to my wife, do you have anything that points towards what she's saying? And she says, well, she sent me some screenshots. Okay. And she sends me the screenshots of these links, and I immediately recognize them. These are my posts. These are things <laughs> I posted. Okay. Right? Right. So, uh, so, go on. <laughs> so here's what happened. The first status was about her teenage son working at a drive through Okay. Right. And the picture is of her son handing them a bag of food. And the status reads in part, hope he doesn't say love you to everybody that comes to this window. <laughs> right. Which is funny because that's his parents. He said love you. Oh, oh, I see. Gotcha. So I posted a link to a 12 second video from Idiocracy, which is a Mike Judge movie. Mike Judge is one of my favorite media producing people. I yeah. Mean, yeah. He, humorous comedian. Yeah. yeah I love Beavis his and Butthead. Yeah. All right. kinds of good stuff. Yep. Yeah. Idiocracy was one of his greatest works. But there's a scene in there where the characters are walking into Costco and the Costco greeter is telling everybody, welcome to Costco. I love you. Welcome to Costco. <laughs> I love you. Yeah. And I posted that video, right? Because uh-huh. I thought it was germane to the posting where she said her son handed her the food and said, I love you. All I did was post the video. So the next post she had that I commented on was about Ovios, which is a new serial featuring Alexander Ovechkin, who is a hockey player for the Washington Capitals. Okay. They're big Washington Capitals. This is there. a real thing. This is a real thing, apparently. <laughs> okay. I posted a link to a video from this puppet show on YouTube that I love watching called Glove and Boots. 
Oh, yeah, I'm familiar with them. I don't know why I love watching Glove and Boots, but they're but funny. I do. They're yeah. funny. They're, yeah. In this video, they talk about how he looks like both a caveman and a vampire, and they even have registered the domain vampirecaveman.com. Okay. So I posted that link as well, and a link to the segment of video where they start talking about registering vampirecaveman.com. Basically, my friend sees a bunch of activity from me on Facebook, and the truth of the matter is I really don't use Facebook that much. Okay. It just so happened that I was on there, and her stuff shows up in my feed. And he immediately makes me think of something related. You're right. And I just started posting the things <laughs> that were inspired. related. Yeah. Right. Okay. But she notices, hey, Joe doesn't really comment on my stuff. All of these comments are just links. Mm-hmm. And there's three of them. So immediately she calls my wife and she says, has Joe's account been pwned? Now, I, I called her back personally. I <laughs> said, I want to let you know that those are links for me that I did post those. They're all safe to click. It's fine. But she didn't click on any of them. Because they all looked weird to her. It it didn't add up. Immediately, it didn't add up to her. It's like, here's somebody who's not really active on Facebook. Hmm. All of a sudden, he's active on Facebook, and he's posting a bunch of links. Let me check, not with him, but with somebody who knows him. Ah, that's all good. That's all good. Exactly. Exactly. As an abundance of caution, turned out to be a false alarm. But what I said to her was, I said, you know what? I'd rather that you'd have done what you did than for you to click on a malicious link that somebody who cloned my account is posting on your Facebook page. So happy ending. Yes. Other than the revelation that this woman had, what a weirdo you are. (laughs) Uh, She is well aware of what a weirdo I am. (laughs) We've known each other since college. Uh, (laughs) I see. Say no more. All right. Right. Very good. My story this week actually comes from Australia, and I'm going to uh, not do an Australian accent out of respect for all of our Australian listeners, some of whom are doing things like driving cars while we do this podcast, and I don't want them to drive off the road. This is from CRN, which is an Australian website here. It's an article by a gentleman named Brendan Foy, and it's titled, IT Suppliers Forced to Close After Procurement Scam. So evidently, this is uh, floating around in Australia, targeting some people there, but I think this is universal enough that it's worth mentioning. There's no reason why it couldn't happen here. So in this particular case, they're calling this the freight forwarding scam, Hmm. and the criminals send out emails, and they target small to medium-sized businesses who are supplying IT stuff. So Hmm. think like hard drives and uh, maybe some servers, some Wi-Fi devices, Ethernet cables, those sorts of things. And so they target them, and what they do is they pretend to be from a large organization like a university or a large corporation. So they spoof the domains, they spoof the emails, they go so far as to spoof signatures of actual executives from places like universities or large corporations, and they put in for large purchases of things like hard drives, let's say. But what they do is they request credit. So not long credit. They say, we only need 14 days credit, maybe Mm -hmm. 30 days. Mm -hmm. And that's not an unusual request. No, it is not. I have to say, uh, you know, when back in the, my previous life, when I ran my own small business, it wasn't unusual to request credit or grant credit, especially for something short like that. The other thing I can see is that if you're a small or medium sized business and you get a sizable order from a well-known organization, that could be a good day for you. Yeah, An exciting absolutely. day. You know, hey, we're going on vacation this year, honey. Right. You know? So what happens is they get granted the credit and they ultimately pay with stolen credit cards 
or they request more credit. And they have the devices shipped to a third-party distribution company, and then that distribution company ships everything overseas. So the distribution company has a legitimate local address. Right. So they're an exporter. Yeah. This, this distribution And company. then it gets shipped out and never to be seen again. The payments get made with stolen credit cards mm -hmm. or they get the credit extended. And ultimately what happens is these small to medium-sized businesses that sent out the merchandise. Right. They're still on the hook to pay their suppliers. Right. And they're out the money. And according to this story, the average losses have been between thirty and $100,000. And the largest was $170,000. And several businesses have actually gone out of business because they haven't been able to absorb this kind of hit. We saw this with other hacks as well. When I do talks about security, I say, tell me some big breaches that, that we hear, what we've heard about. And, hmm. and I always say, nobody ever mentions the Broadway grill. Hmm. which was, I can't remember, it was out west somewhere, but they were a uh, a small like deli that was attacked by Roman Selevnev, the carter, yeah. the guy who had all that carter. This is a, not a social engineering attack. It was actually hacking in. That company went out of business because they were hacked as well. Hmm. And, and these are small to medium-sized businesses that are being targeted. They're being targeted because they don't have the resources to have a, a full-blown security operation. Right. And then also, I imagine, like we were saying, you could imagine somebody getting excited about making right. that big sale. Absolutely. They don't want anything to get in the way of that. Right. You know, we, let's get this, this sale through. This can be, this is a $100,000 sale. This is going to make our month. Right. We're doing great. Right. Exactly. Right. I suppose, I mean, ways to protect yourself against this, you, you could be insured against this sort of thing, I would imagine. You could. You could do a little bit of vetting. Uh, you know, you could place a phone call to the organization and ask to speak to the person, tell them mm. that you're from this company and right. that, you know, they, they should know who you are. And if not, you don't. <laughs> not the phone number they provide. Right. Look them up. Look yeah. them up. Verify it. Mm. Have your sales organization do that. I think it's a cautionary tale. If you're someone who's doing this kind of business, just take that extra step. Yeah. Uh, be proactive. Yeah. Make yeah. sure you're, you're covered for these sort of losses. Talk to your insurance folks and see what it would cost to be covered for this sort of thing. But then also... Just slow down, like exactly. we say. Slow down. Make those extra calls. And if something seems too good to be true, it probably is. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've never gone out and solicited something from a large university, how would they know that you exist? And why would they be writing you and immediately asking to purchase large quantities of equipment? Yeah. All right. Well, that is my story this week. It is time to move on to our catch of the day. Joe, our catch of the day this week, this is making the rounds. This is from a gentleman named Dave Holmes. He is a writer and comedian. He's based out of L.A., mm -hmm. and he received a scam call from someone pretending to be the IRS, which is something we've talked about here before. It happens a lot. Yeah. And Dave uh, has a background in improvisational comedy. <laughs> so uh, he was able to string them along. I'll just set it up here and I will play the part of Dave and you can be the person from the IRS. Uh, Dave starts out this series of messages. He says, I just got targeted by the laziest, shoddiest grifters I have ever come across in my life. And boy, did I enjoy it. I was coming out of the gym, disoriented and exhausted. And there was a VM from a number in Maryland. Huh. I listened, and it said, This is a final notice from the IRS. I called back because I get stupid after a workout, and I thought, this might be real. I should take it easy. Maybe. Anyway, a very stern person answered the phone and spoke very quickly. This is in reference to your audit in 2008. Which actually happened. I owed zero. He continued, There's a warrant for your arrest. You face five years in federal prison, and we have canceled your driver's license. You owe... 
$5,273. We sent a letter to your home in October and nobody was there to receive it, but we left the slip and you never called back. This tells us that you are trying to run away. Are you able to pay this money in full today? I'll need to talk to my tax preparer. They said they were going to put me on hold and then hung up on me. But I had their number, a 20-minute drive ahead of me, and I do improv. So I called back in tears. I was on the phone with one of your agents and I got disconnected. I cannot go to prison. Please help. I have my credit card out, but my hands are shaking too terribly for me to read it. What do I do? Please help me. The agent on the phone, a man with a very thick Indian accent, whose name was Officer Eric Johnson, said he could not take my card. Then what am I to do, Officer Johnson? If I owe money, I want to make it right immediately. I cannot go to prison. I cannot. I have a family. I have a job. I'm going to be pulled over and arrested. Officer Johnson revealed that this was a strong possibility. What the IRS needed me to do was go to a bank and withdraw $5,300 in cash and stay on the phone with them while I did it. I agreed. I said, still crying, I'm a five-minute drive from the bank with a drive through but I'm driving as fast as I can. We stayed on the line together for that whole five-minute drive, me and Officer Johnson. I asked how long he'd been at the IRS. He said, eight years. I asked what he did before that and how he likes the IRS. He said, Mr. Holmes. I am busy doing your paperwork. I said, of course, of course. I told him I was pulling up to the ATM to withdraw the money, and he said, You can't withdraw that much money from an ATM. You have to go in. I'm going to be honest with you here. That was news to me, but it makes sense now that I think about it. So I pretended to go into the bank. I opened and closed my car door, improvised the whole transaction with a teller voice. Thank you. A whole nine yards. I returned to the car, and I said, Officer Johnson, I have $5,300 in a paper bag. Tell me what to do next. Hold on. He put me on hold, during which I would imagine there was a 30-second grifter office party. <laughs> I was then transferred to his boss, an agent with the same access who identified herself only as Officer Debbie. Hmm. Officer Debbie told me I needed to go to Bank of America to deposit the cash into an account whose number they would give me. Officer Debbie then put me on hold. I was then transferred to a guy who announced himself simply as Agent Paul... Agent Paul was going to give me the account information. I said, fire away. He gave me an account and routing numbers into which to deposit my money. The name on the account? Jack Milton. I said, I'll be sure to tell the teller it's for the IRS so that he or she is extra careful with the numbers and whatnot. He said, you are not allowed to do that. This is a federal case and talking about it is illegal. I said, that makes perfect sense. I want to make sure we don't get disconnected, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep the Bluetooth connected, leave the phone in the car, and keep the car running in the parking lot while I do this. Agent Paul said, I don't think you should do that. I said, Bluetooth gets weird, though. He couldn't really argue with that. So I thanked Agent Paul, told him how crisp and professional Officers Johnson and Debbie had been, and went into the bank to transact. I opened and closed the car door, thought long and hard about a car theft plot twist with all the new characters, but I was close to where I was going. I opened and closed the door again, and I said, I've done it. I have my receipt. May I read it to you? Agent Paul said with enthusiasm and relief. You did? And no, I don't need to read what's on the receipt. 
And then I passed my destination and decided to drive around for a minute. I I said, please let me read it to you. It says, this is the worst, sloppiest, saddest attempt at a con I have ever experienced, and you should be ashamed. You are bad at grifting, and you should stop it. I hope you never get another good night's sleep, not because you are bad, but because you are terrible at being a con artist. And somewhere out there, someone better is going to con you, and you're too dumb to see it coming. Go yourself. Agent Paul, I swear, said, Please accept my apologies. And hung up the phone. I thought about it, and I don't accept his apologies. (laughs) And that is our catch of the day. Uh, (laughs) uh, Hats off to Dave Holmes for writing this up. He's, as I said, he's a writer from uh, writer and comedian from L.A. Just uh, fun stuff, top-notch stuff here. I don't know, are there any real lessons to take away from this one, Joe? Well, one of the things that's interesting in here is that he is called about an audit that happened in 2008, mm-hmm. which did happen to him. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if that's just a coincidence. Mm, that's a good question, because audits aren't on the public record or anything like that. I don't like think that. so. I don't, I don't Especially believe Especially if are. you owe zero. I mean, you, you can get audited any time. There are random right. audits that happen. A, right. a lot of them end this way, where the IRS goes, okay, yeah. it's fine. Something got flagged for some reason. You right. explain it to them, and they go, oh, I see. We're good here. Yep, yeah. exactly. Coming up next, we have my interview with Rachel Toback. Great to have her back on the show. But before we talk to her... A word from our sponsors at Know Before. And now we return to our sponsor's question about forms of social engineering. Know Before will tell you that where there's human contact, there can be con games. It's important to build the kind of security culture in which your employees are enabled to make smart security decisions. To do that, they need to recognize phishing emails, of course, but they also need to understand that they can be hooked by voice calls. This is known as vishing, or by SMS texts, which people call smishing. See how your security culture stacks up against KnowBefore's free test. Get it at knowbefore.com slash fishtest. That's K-N-O-W-B-E, the number four, dot com slash fishtest. And we are back, Joe. Uh, I had the pleasure of speaking once again with Rachel Toback. She's from Social Proof Security. As you know, she is also, I believe, the three-time winner of the Social Engineering Capture the Flag at DEF CON. I believe she's a black badge holder. She is the reigning champion. (laughs) So uh, someone who really knows her stuff. So it's a real treat to have her back on the show. Here's my conversation with Rachel Toback. I think last time we talked, we might have spoken a little bit about different pretexts who social engineers pretend to be. And a big thing that we're seeing right now is that there's a huge uptick in reward-based pretexting. So what that means is, rather than saying an email something like, your package has been delayed, or your email has been locked, click here to reinstate access to your account, you know, something Mm. like that. That would be more of a fear-based pretext or a negative pretext. We're seeing a lot of really interesting positive pretexting coming through with phishing and vishing. Things like you have new opportunities for your benefits at work. Or, hey, everybody at this company that, you know, we all know you love this taco place down the street. Here is two free tacos for for this Tuesday. Really interesting because it's not playing on a fear-based pretext that we see commonly, but it's it's really just reward-based. Has there been any techniques that you've seen that have fallen off the radar or fallen out of fashion, things that folks aren't using much anymore? 
there's a lot of lazy attackers out there, right? They just kind of want to spray everything out there and see who clicks. So you're still going to get your UPS tracking phishing emails. You're still going to get your lazy, you need to reinstate your access to your Capital One. That's just very relevant right now because of the Capital (laughs) One, (laughs) the Capital One attack, your Capital One card, something like that. But we are seeing some more creative pretexting. We're seeing a lot more spear phishing, a lot more spear vishing as well. So people are actually taking the time to develop strong pretexts with a good background that you're going to fall for. And over time, the more politely paranoid you are, the more likely you are to report that. Like a business email compromise attack. Those are very common where basically you you masquerade as the CEO or somebody in a high position of power and you request something like, hey, we need 15 gift cards. Are you in the office today? They're for our clients. You know, something Mm. really typical like that. And they're just going to spray that to people hoping that people are going to say, oh, of course, you know, you're the CEO. I want to get these to you. They're going to scratch off the back of like a Amazon or a Walgreens gift card or iTunes gift card. And they're going to send that to you. And we actually have seen that the losses from those type of attacks have increased significantly, which either means that attackers are sending them and spraying them to more people or people are falling for them more often. My guess is it's maybe a little bit of both. From 2017 to 2018, the FBI reported that there was a huge increase in these losses. So I think it was like $676 million and it doubled to $1.3 billion in 2018. Wow. And there's really no way that law enforcement can keep up. Absolutely. It's, it's a huge challenge. It really comes down to creating that security conscious culture at your company and making sure that people are likely to report that content. What are some of the top things that you recommend when you're out speaking to organizations, spreading the word about these things? What information do you have for them? Well, the first thing that I always say is you have to have a combination of social engineering awareness and you have to have your technical controls in place. You have to have both. You know, something like two-factor, duo, YubiKeys. Those things are essential to make sure that you don't have account takeovers. And that's something that attackers are going to try for often. SMS two-factor is okay, but I, I always recommend that we try and move towards something like Duo, Google Authenticator, something a little bit more tokenized, mm. um, like a YubiKey. And then the next thing that I recommend is that people use what I like to call real-world two-factor, which basically just means that if somebody tries to call you or email you, you use the opposite method, a second factor, to confirm they are who they say they are. So let's say you email me, I give a call to you at the phone number that I already have on hand previously and just say, hey, just checking real quick to make sure that you sent me that email. It looked like something that I wasn't expecting or, hey, I just want to make sure that I can protect your account. Just making sure that email came from you. Something like that can really shut down those types of BEC, business email compromise emails very, very quickly. And I guess uh, imparting in your employees that it's okay to take those extra steps. Yeah, absolutely. I was just working with a law firm client about this and they raised a really important question. They were saying, you know what? I have really, really important people that I work with on a daily basis. I can't just be constantly not you know, thinking that they are who they say they are. Like they're going to get upset with me. They're going to get frustrated with me. And I think that's a really important thing to think about. So instead of saying something like, you know what, I can't help you in this way or shutting them down and saying, I have to do this. Sorry, I can't help you like that. Just saying something like to make sure that I can protect your privacy, I'm going to give you a call back. Something as simple as that. You know, if you're working with a VIP client, they're going to say, oh, they're thinking about protecting my privacy or, oh, they're working to protect my account. And they're going to appreciate that as opposed to saying something like, you know, I can't work with you like that. Let me give you a call back. It's really just all about that phrasing. And once you have that script down, it feels more natural and helpful. So I know something that you are interested in is voting hacking and securing those systems. What sorts of things have you been working on there? 
Yes. So last year, Hari Hursti at the DEF CON Voting Village and his team taught me how to hack a voting machine, which I made a video for and it got a lot of press, which is really exciting to see that people are starting to think about voting security. What I did was I learned how to get admin access on an AccuVote TSX machine, which is used in 18 states. Eight of those are swing states. So things like Pennsylvania, Hmm. Ohio, Florida. And a lot of people say, okay, so you have admin access. What can you do? Admin access, if you are in the the field, you basically know that you can do anything. You can change the ballot. You can update the tallies for the votes. You can basically disrupt or undermine our democracy. And so I've been doing a lot of research and reading a lot this past year to get ready for DEF CON and Voting Hacking Village. And I'm really excited. I've learned a lot from one of the people that I follow is Matt Blaze. And some of the things that I've found from Matt Blaze is he's been doing a lot of research. He testified in front of Congress and he basically found that there's a lot of different things we could do, but there's three things that he recommends for voting hacking. And that is paper ballots, risk limiting audits and protecting the backend systems. And the things that I'm specifically focused on are more in terms of how to protect people in the voting system from falling for social engineering. And so Hmm. it's less on the technical side and it's more about like, okay, someone's trying to disrupt or defame public officials or they're trying to influence policy decisions or undermine our democracy. Like, what are all the ways that they could do that? Like, who would they target? And I've been doing a lot of research with teams about election services, ballot managers, county clerks, like how do the systems work and how would attackers try and target those systems? Examples of that as simple as uh, folks uh, sending out things on social media saying that, oh, the polls are going to close early today or we got the results in, no need to come to the polls. Absolutely. That's definitely one way to disrupt an election and something that's on Twitter's mind. They have, it's like a new alert that shows up that basically says if there's content that they think is suspicious to trying to disrupt a vote, they slap an alert on top of it. And I think they actually take that content down pretty quickly. And then Hmm. the other things that I have in mind are things like third party IT support, calling a county clerk or someone from the board of elections or the clerk and recorder and trying to get them to update their machines or download a malicious browser extension or something like that. And so that's something that I'm really passionate about is making sure that those folks understand what their role is and how somebody might target them to disrupt the election. All right, Joe, what do you think? I love hearing Rachel Tobak. Anytime she talks, I'm, I'm a big fan of hers. I, I follow her on Twitter. You should too. The voting hacking, I want to get right into that because I think that's probably the most important thing that is discussed in this interview mm. uh, for all of us. And yes, her point about being able to disassemble these electronic machines, this is a problem. If you are not concerned about these electronic voting machines, you really should be. One of our professors, Avi Rubin, has written a book called Brave New Ballot about these kind of machines, and they're absolutely demonstrably not secure. The new system we now have in Maryland actually is a lot better. So in Maryland, what we have is when you walk in, you get a paper ballot and you mark that paper ballot clearly. So it's not like the Florida issue where you have, you punch out chads or things (laughs) you have, you actually mark it clearly. They give you the pencil to mark it with, they give you the ballot. And then that ballot is tallied in a ballot box there on top of the ballot box. There's a reader that reads the ballot. And if the ballot is valid, it drops the ballot into the ballot box. If the ballot is invalid, it spits the ballot back out and says the voter didn't vote properly. It's great because you get the quick tally so you can have your results fast and the paper is preserved. And this is important. Everybody's ballots go into the same box. Mm, And that mm -hmm. may not seem like Mm, it's important, but mm -hmm. it is critically important to the process. So you don't lose a box of ballots or something like that. You can't be shuffling 
particular people to certain machines or exactly. theirs will, their votes will end up in a certain box or anything like and that. You've that got box this... will get lost. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Yep. Yeah. What else from Rachel's interview? I love that she's also concerned back on the staying on elections. I love that she's concerned about the social engineering prospect of calling into like an elections board and saying, let's update the software on your computer. Mm -hmm. That terrifies me as a freedom loving American <laughs> who wants everybody's vote to count. I think that's absolutely a very astute observation on her part. Getting away from voting, going back to the new social engineering techniques, we're seeing these reward-based pretexts where, you know, I'll tell you, here's another one that'll work on me, free tacos, yeah. right? <laughs> what Rachel is saying here is that spear phishing, this is a more narrow phishing campaign. Right. It may not exactly be spear phishing because when you think spear phishing, you generally think going right after a, a certain individual, but yeah. it's certainly casting a much more narrow net, but mm -hmm. with the hopes that that net will catch more people. I'm surprised that the gift card scam has increased so much that it doubled from 2017 to 2018. We're not talking about this enough, I don't think. Tell everybody you know, nobody accepts valid forms of payment and gift cards. Well, it's good to see too that there's more awareness from the retailers that they're yeah. educating the folks who are checking people out, ringing them up, saying, if someone comes through, here's some things you should ask them. Right. Look out for them. I really like what she calls real world two factor. Mm. That's that's a great term. You send me an email that says, hey, Joe, click on the link. I'm going to send you a text. This email from you, I'm going to mm -hmm. I'm going to send you a different means of communication, just like in our story today. All right. Well, again, thanks so much to Rachel Toback for joining us. She is from Social Proof Security. And if you're heading out to DEF CON this year, be sure to stop by and say hello to her. I'm sure she would love to see you. And that is our show this week. We want to thank our sponsors at Know Before. They are the social engineering experts and the pioneers of new school security awareness training. Be sure to take advantage of their free phishing test, which you can find at knowbefore.com slash fish test. Think of Know Before for your security training. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Our staff writer is Tim Nodar. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.